0: Hello, and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, our very special guest again on the show today is Steve Garber, Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust in the Pacific Northwest in the States. Steve has recently served as Professor of Marketplace Theology and Director of the Masters in Leadership, Theology and Society at Regent College, Vancouver. He's the author of many, many books, and for many years was the principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation and Culture. And he still writes for the Washington Institute. And he continues to serve as a consultant to colleges and corporations. This time, though, he's here with us to talk about the films of Terence Malick, which I know are a particular interest of his and one film in particular that grabbed my attention, A Hidden Life, released in 2019. Steve, hi, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to see you again. Good talk with you again today. And thank you for joining us again. And uh, what draws you, I wonder, into the film worlds of Terence Malick? I've long been interested in film. Um, I remember uh, having gone to a
1: place called La Brie when I was at a 20 year old college dropout and met a man there who had probably the first book by a serious Christian about the serious work of filmmaking. Donald Drew was his name. It was called Images of Man A Critique of the Contemporary Cinema. And he took me to see films with him along the way. And I still remember him sitting beside me in the darkening theater, taking a notepad out with the the pencils. I said, what are you doing, Donald? I'm not leaving my brains at the box office, Stephen. And uh, he was going to take notes on the film. And I never had ever thought about watching a film like that before, really. But I would say from that moment on, I began to be interested in the deeper story of a a, film, just to push forward many, many years, probably seven or eight years ago, I was invited by the Beijing Film Academy in China, which is really the major film school for Asia, to come speak on the question of good stories and good societies to all of their students and faculty. And And uh, I've been interested in film for a long time. So when Terrence Malick began to, you know, obviously he's been making films for 20 or 25 years now, but I would say... The last few films I've been especially interested in, and that's what we're talk about today.
0: we better ask for folk who don't know, who is Terrence Malick? Well,
1: surprise of all surprises, he's maybe seen as maybe in the film auteur, which is a world I don't use typically in my life, but it's sort of like people who are very serious filmmakers, film goers, film watchers. Uh, Terrence Malick would be seen as a, a, among the best of the best in the world today. Um, he's not French, you know. He's not Polish. Uh, he's American of all things, actually. And uh, ten years ago, when his film "The Tree of Life" was entered into the Cannes Festival, south of France, um, it won the Palme d'Or, which was the gold prize for the best film of the of the year, actually, uh, which is a surprising recognition because the film, if you have eyes to see, is a story of creation, fall redemption and consummation it doesn't doesn't name the story doesn't name the chapters of the story but if you're paying attention you think so who are you terence malik and why are you telling a story like this actually so he lives in austin texas Uh, he's a quite thoughtful serious filmmaker and a quite thoughtful serious christian too Uh, not trying to make films for Christian audiences, but trying to make films for everyone. I've used this question for many years. Can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? And clearly Terence Malick, as a filmmaker, is making films shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language at least some of the whole world can understand.
0: And he is a stunning, stunning filmmaker, isn't he? I mean, I was just... Knocked knocked over when I watched ahead in life at how beautiful, how beautiful it was. It, it it looks so stunning. Part of that is to do with the landscape, but we'll come to that in a minute. That's You've true. written a, a very interesting article on meta narrative for the Washington Institute, haven't you? And I, I wonder in what ways Malik reflects on meta narrative in his films. It's uh-huh. such a very good question. We could talk a lot
1: more about it than we have time today, uh, but. Um... I would argue that everyone, whether they're conscious about it, of it or not, whether they like to think about themselves have done so or not, whether they've ever used the words metanarrative or narrative, which most, most people haven't, of course. They were all, all of us always thinking about this tension between me and we in life. Marriages are about that. Families are about that. Neighborhoods are about that. Uh, St. Augustine's best-known works are about that. If the Confessions are the first autobiography we have in history, it is his own narrative, of course, isn't it? Augustine's story of his own story. Uh, the City of God, on the other hand, is really a story of a bigger story. It's a meta story, a meta narrative. It's a story of the whole of life, the whole of history, really. So I would say from, you know, it's, all, it's really impossible not to wrestle with these ideas, whether we use the words or not, of meta narrative and narrative. And for me, you know, it is in some ways trying to understand this tension that exists between what we say matters most to us And how we actually live our lives day by day.
0: How I wonder, does a hidden life fit into Malik's
1: movie career? Well, I don't know that I can give an exhaustive account of the whole career, but I mean he's been making films since you know maybe The Thin Red Line was first, maybe one one that I saw uh, along the way, but he's been making films you know every year or two or three for many years now, and clearly his films are not the kind of films that in terms of you know a theater audiences are going to be winning the blockbuster of the year award you know most people are not drawn to his stories for all sorts of reasons they're not you know fast-paced in that sense they're not there's no car chases there's you know i don't think he's ever been a bare bottom that i've ever seen one of his films um you know so we're not going to his films to be you know, to use a strange word, titillated, you know, by any anything like that. Um, to be drawn into Malick, you have to be willing to have a serious conversation with somebody about the way the world is. Uh, and
0: and a number of these movies in recent years have been unscripted, I understand. Was Is this one, a, Hidden Life was a, a more or less a return to a more structured script and format, wasn't yeah,
1: it? I think in some ways it may be the most accessible of all his films, actually, because it is that way. Uh, to, in, my, in my reading of it, it's, it's, uh, it's rather than the tree of life, which, which is this grand cosmic account of all of history, all of life. Hidden life is one man's life over the course of a couple of years. You know, it starts here, it goes here, and it goes here. And you know, you'd have to have be blind in your heart to not be able to follow the, the storyline.
0: Mm. And it's a great story, isn't it? Is that well? What's the movie about? You tell us. It's about the life of Franz Jägerstetter. Who was he? Jägerstetter,
1: Yeah. Um, so he was an Austrian farmer living in at least in the way it is, in the way the film was offered to us clearly the most pristine glorious farming valley in the world you know um, it's as beautiful as anything you've ever never even ever imagined on film I would say with a setting that it's it's done within it's pre-industrial pre you know pre-modern farming Technologies he draws a bunny. he has an ox he has a wooden plow he's married he has some kids. Lives in a little farming village everyone knows everybody else they have for generations um, and uh, he's innocently paying attention to the things which are his to pay attention to you know in the first minutes of the film and then slowly slowly this is the 1940 41 42 you know the nazis begin to make their way across europe and finally to the little pristine valley where he lives and and uh he has discussions about how to respond to all this but decides to sign up for the National Guard, which is the question before him. Will you sign up for the National Guard? And he signs up at the table and with a certain good conscience, being a good Austrian that he is. But then he's immediately said, well, Franz, that isn't enough, of course, now. You need to have Hitler. And he'd raise your hand and salute to Hitler. And he says, well, I can't do that. Well, of course you can do that. They're just words, Franz. He says, but I can't say words I don't believe. Mm-hmm. And the drama of the story is the drama of that moment, um, of what happens in his life because of that decision on that day.
0: Yes. Now, we better talk about the actors because they are extraordinarily fine, all of them. Yes. Who, who have we got? Well, I, I, I'm I got, sorry. I've got some listed here. That's all right. That's <laughs> <the main laughs> I didn't a okay. them. Yeah, well, we've got him, good, We've and got.
1: I've we, watched this film several times. I can't. I, don't know their names. So. Right.
0: Well, we've got, we've got to mention August Diehl, who is Franz. And an absolutely stunning performance. Bruno Gantz, of course, who people will probably have heard of as the judge. That's a chilling and amazing, uh, yes. amazing yes. moment. Um, we'll come to talk about that in a minute. And Valerie Parkner, of course, as Francesca, is it, um, Franz's wife. And she is absolutely wonderful in the, in the film. They're all. It's an ensemble It's an ensemble performance by a team of superb actors, isn't it, really? Now, what's the significance of the title, though, I wonder, A Hidden Life? Where does that come from?
1: Well, it's it's a, it's a beautiful drawing upon George Eliot, English novelist, and her novel Middle March. And there's a moment, there's a place along the way where she remarks, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number of who lived
0: faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Is there a connection back there to uh, Colossians three? I read somewhere your life is hidden with Christ in God.
1: Well, I mean, she was not consciously writing as a Christian, George Eliot. You know. um, there's clearly a, a you know a, a dimension of what is true that most people who have lived good lives, we don't even know about, really. Uh, you know, I think about my own forebears. I'm not the son or the grandson of kings and queens, you know, or prime ministers. I'm, you know, farmers and teachers and, you know, a scientist along the way. And But they're not people who, lives remembered by the masses, of course, and most of us are like that. And even the most faithful lives are probably more that way than not, actually, where, you know, a generation or two later, you think, so who was that? You know, and but George Eliot's argument was that most of the stories of life are stories of people whose lives we don't remember that way. They're, they they rest in unvisited tombs. They're they're hidden lives. And Franz Jagenstadter, you know, because of the way the story is told, you know, he was an innocent, unknown farmer in a faraway place in the world, and. You know, and strangeness of all strangenesses, you know, six, 70 years later, we're telling the story to the whole world. Um, and uh, it isn't because, you know, the way he lived or the way he died was remembered at the time as being exemplary. Uh, he was just one of many, many, many in those years
0: of life. Uh, he was pronounced a saint, I think, wasn't he, by the Catholic Church, was he? he was, I think so. He was at least on his way, yeah. yeah. And one of the, th- the accusations that's constantly hurled at him, by his accusers throughout the film is that you don't matter. In effect, your life, this will, this, your objections to Hitler will make no difference to the world whatsoever. You, this act of yours, which is costing you so much, will not, never be remembered. That's the great irony, and of course, it is remembered and remembered magnificently in this in this movie. To what extent, I wonder, though, is Franz a, a Christ-like figure? Mm-hmm.
1: I think he is profoundly, actually. Um, And if we are to live lives in imitation of Christ, what is the vocation of Christ? Uh, um, One of M.T. Wright's best images in my mind is he speaks about Christ as taking the most remarkable joy, the most remarkable sorrow into his heart, making them the, the fabric of his days. As we take up the imitation of Christ in our own lives, his vocation, the model for our vocations, we too will find the most remarkable joy, the most remarkable sorrow. Uh, What is the vocation of Jesus? It is to take into his own heart the sin and sorrow of the world. Um, And I think, you know, it's hard to think about a film that we could talk about today on a conversation like this that's better at that than a hidden life, actually. Somebody who quite openly with deep commitments to God, to his faith, to the meaning of, you know, of the eschaton, which we can talk about more a little bit later here. He never, ever, ever, ever uses the language of eschatology in the film. But the whole story is a story set within what he believes to be true about the whole of history, about the meta-narrative. So his own story only can make sense for him and for his wife because what they believe to be true about the great story, the meta-narrative of all of history. Uh, the tenderness, the poignancy, the drama, the terror, the pain. I mean, that can only make sense if actually there's a bigger story and in which my own story can be made sense of.
0: How, I wonder, is the passion of Jesus woven into the events of the movie? Because it, it, it seems to me it quite consciously is at various points, isn't it?
1: I mean, there's the scorn, public scorn and shame, come, comes to him. You know, everyone from his village, fellow villagers who do not agree with his decision. You know, in fact, almost nobody, apart from his wife. She's the only one who really. Says, I'm with you, Franz. You know that those are these. There's a, this tender, tender times of conversation where either visibly, verbally, whether it's in a letter, where she says to him the most tender of all things to be said between a husband and a wife, even with all the weight upon us, all the terror that we're facing together, I'm with you to the end, Franz. Hmm. But I would say also, I mean, part of what's intriguing to me about this film, but also The Tree of Life, is that Terence Malick has chosen, and unusually, unusually so given the, the nature of the contemporary cinema, to have Franz Jagenstader actually praying all the way through this, this, the film. Now He doesn't sit off. And we don't see him bowing on his, on his knees and saying, our father who art in heaven, typically, you know, but clearly you're, if you're listening carefully, you're thinking, so he's talking to someone, isn't he? And you realize that most of the time he's talking to God in heaven about what? About the the life that is his to be lived day by day. Um,
0: There's not a lot of dialogue in the film, actually, considering it runs for over three hours, that such dialogue as there is is so important and, okay. and is made more important by its uh, mm-hmm. relative restraint, I found. How does, um, because I was fascinated by the farming community and the portrayal of of the farming life, which is is depicted quite wonderfully. Um, How I wonder does Malik portray and capture the rhythms of a farming community, the festivals, the celebrations, the hard hard work?
1: Well, I think about all of that, and we could talk about all that more, too. I mean, there is clearly the day by day grinding out of an agricultural life in a pre-industrial, pre-modern society world you know i mean we shouldn't be romantic about the difficulty because it's portrayed in the film of falling behind an ox with a wooden plow i mean it's honorable work of course it's honorable work really was it hard work it was very hard work actually um Even on the, I mean, the family life, the playfulness of father, mother, the children together—that's beautiful and lovely, and so rich and so tender because of what it means in terms of where the story actually goes in in the end. Um, But there's also, of course, the the festivals, the bringing a harvest into the village, and you know, and as right as that is, as good as all that is, even that becomes a place of some social political tension for the family, Uh, because why? Well, Franz is seen as what? A traitor. Why? Because he would not hire Hitler. Even though the village as a village was not Nazi, there was so much the assumption of, come on, Franz, these are just words to say. You don't have to believe them. Well, I can't say words I don't believe. As I said
0: earlier, that's the tension. That's the drama of the story. Yes. And to what extent are we shown a film or is this a film about how evil takes over a small community? And debases people. I mean, we see it with the, the the village mayor, don't we? How quickly he becomes compromised, and then I think pretty much totally corrupted.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And again, you and I don't know much about each other at all. But I, every book I've written, I've written about the question of Nazism and of those who said no. Um, it's been a deeper, longer interest of mine for many, many years now. And uh, and if even on the one hand the story stories of You know, of those who were compromised is clearly one to be remembered and to be, you know, sobered by. I've spent more of my life actually thinking about the stories of those who said no. And when you, so why did you say no? What in you gave you the eyes to see, the ears to hear, that you could say, no, I can't go there with you. I will not do that. I will not say that. I will not be part of that. Uh, Because that to me is a more more important story uh, of those who decided simply to say, I cannot do that. Uh, the great Oxford moral the- philosopher Iris Murdoch put it this way, and I have these words etched into my heart At crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over.
0: Hmm. So, think
1: about that with Franz Jagenstadter here, and in, in relation hmm. to the other villagers who decided the, uh, the, the other way. Think. So, what was it about Franz, you know, walking up to the table, set up for the National Guard, innocent act as it was? But pushed further and he said, no, I cannot do that. I cannot go there. Um, so at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. So you see in Franz, I mean, remarkably deep character um, of somebody who who could see where the lines in the sand were, historically, politically, socially, and knew what was possible, and clearly what was not possible, if he was gonna hold on to the integrity of his own, his own heart.
0: One of the most troubling aspects of the movie for me was the portrayal of the church, huh. as as in the established church. I mean, Franz didn't get a lot of help there, did he? Really? No,
1: he just didn't at all. There was that one better conversation, a little bit in the church building itself, where you know he's talking to somebody, and but most of the time the church fails him, and and that's a grief, you know, beyond beyond grief, really, to see, you know, because in again. The story could be told black and white, and it is not a black and white story. That the church as church was completely compromised in, during World War II, during the Holocaust, uh, and yet it's also true that those who said no were almost always Christian people. Almost always, that is the case. So, uh, if the church as institution was terribly compromised, um, the Lutheran Church in Germany, the Catholic Church in Germany, you know, uh, the Catholic Church in the Vatican, and but there are also, I mean, I mean, I've been in the Holocaust Memorial here in Washington D.C. There's a, uh, the last place you go is the ground floor, and there's a, there's a probably a five or six foot high, kind of wall with all the names of all the European, all the known people in Netherlands, France, England, you know, Germany, you know, Italy who said no. Uh, everybody's listed there that that are listed that we have records of it all. Uh, one of the smallest nations of Europe has the longest list of names, and that's the Netherlands. Mm. And uh, um, and the Dutch people were typically, typically born of deeply wrought Christian commitment.
0: Um, we're willing to say no, we won't go along with that. Um, Prior to all the compromise, of course, the the actual physical church in the film is re- is really portrayed as the center of community life, isn't it? It
1: was, of course, it had to be that mm. you know in that mm. kind of a world.
0: Yes. I wonder, let's come and talk a little bit, we've got a bit of time left, I want to talk a little bit about the actual um, technical aspects of the film, if if we can. I wonder how, I mean, Mallet uses very wide-angle photography, doesn't he, or his director of photography does. How does that help him capture this really stunning landscape? Well, again,
1: I I, you know, I haven't seen all the films made, neither of you, but I, I know I've thought in watching the film several times, I've never seen a more beautifully filmed film than this film.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The camera technologies, the filmmaker's eye, I mean, there's just, as you've used the word several times, stunning. There's just a remarkable, magnificent ability to capture the grandeur of this Alpine setting in which this small
0: hidden life, in George Eliot's phrase, is remembered. Yes, I sometimes felt that nature almost overpowered the human story. It doesn't, (laughs) but it it, it could have done, such as the stunning landscape that we're presented with. Is, is, Is nature, the mountains, for example, his village, does it actually become a character in the movie?
1: I had not thought about that, and that that could be a way to see that. I mean, I would say that it clearly is, it's not negligible, it's not nothing. It's really seen as integral to the story. And I think in some ways, from from my mind, it would be, you know, it's holding together both the reality of Franz Jagenstader, this basically unknown man in history, uh, living in a place of such grandeur and majesty, uh, and his life being... Profoundly heroic. Um, uh, I found myself thinking: if you take the grandeur of those first half hour or so of the film, and then to the the cell-like, minuscule, miniaturized place of his, his existence in the last days and weeks and years of his life, um, you think: well, it's such a such a stark contrast between where his life was and where it, his life became. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, how are the the natural rhythms of farming and the Jägerstädter family contrasted with what I see as the violent rhythms of the officers in the prison camp? I mean, you can see it in the bodies and, and body language and the way people move. The guards and the prison officers, almost erratic dysfunctional violent gestures and movements and body motions as opposed to those beautiful scenes where the family are seen reaping and doing the farm work where they seem to be moving almost in a um, I can't put I can't find the words for it but they're, they're moving in a, a rhythmical way aren't they as opposed to the the Nazi characters
1: and they're both I mean they're not two sides of the same coin I don't know if that's how I would say it but they're they're both true about the human heart, aren't they? They're both true of the human condition. We have the capacity and for both in, in life. I know that, you know, if I took Donald Drew's counsel to me many years ago, the man wrote "Images of Man." Took me to the theater with him. Um, "Images of Man." It's quite a, a quite a title, really, because what he's arguing is that every every film is a window into what, what it means to be a human being. Um, and different answers to the question. I kill, therefore I am. I love, therefore I am. I work, therefore I am. I copulate, therefore I am. So he takes the Cartesian, the, the Descartes, you know, argument, you know, and says, well, every film is one more window into what it means to be a human being, what image, different image of man. Um, I think what I, you know, I honor about Malick's willingness to step into storytelling as he does is that he wrestles with both the glory and the ruin of the human heart. And I think both have to be done in an honest film, in a in a good film. You have to somehow be willing to address both realities.
0: What's the role of music in the film? Because the score is quite wonderful and I haven't noted down the um, we should say the cinematographer is Jörg Widmer, but I haven't noted down the name of the composer who um, did the score, but the score is quite beautiful. And we get chunks of the Barks at Matthew Passion, for example, at one point. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would say that's indicative of who Malik is. I mean, he, I said before he's a very thoughtful, very serious filmmaker, and you know, thanks be to God, a very thoughtful, serious Christian who thinks about the making of film. Um, and so you know that when he, you know, is drawing upon, you know, with his, you know, colleagues, you know, creating a score for the film, it's going to be something which draws upon you know, the best best we have, because he's he is seen as, in the 21st century, as good as we have in the world as a filmmaker.
0: Yes, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, and I would say he's been one of the best filmmakers ever. Not that my opinion counts for much, but I've watched a lot of movies. Do you have a favourite moment in in the film, or one or two favourite moments? I think on the one side I love,
1: you know, the playfulness of husband and wife together, in the early moments of the film. um, You know, they work really, really hard. You know, there's nothing about their life which is, you know, particularly glorious other than they live in a glorious setting and they have a glorious, honest, and true love for each other. Um, But it's a difficult life. It's a very challenging, burdensome life because of the the weight of the work which is theirs to take up every day. Um, And yet in the middle of all that, there is, you know, true playfulness together. And I love how Malik. Captures that his desire and willingness to make sure that that's part of the story that we are taking to we're taking in as we watch, watch the film. Um, I think you know, uh, maybe later on in the story, I mentioned this in passing a little bit, but I think the correspondence that husband and wife have together, um, it's profound and it's so dear and it's so tender, you know, and uh, you know, and you realize that you know, humanly speaking, it is his. You know his love's, his wife's continued, constant love for him that sustains him in the face of the worst of all moments in human experience,
0: um, and that's how it must be. It's how it ought to be. Yes, she's wonderful, isn't she, Mrs. Yeagerstetter? Yeah, very memorable and be- and beautifully portrayed by by the actress Valerie Packner, is it, I think, yes. Stephen, you and I could go on on, talking for hours about this. I mean, it it is a film that haunts you and and, um, will stay with me for a very long time, that I know. Uh, So if you haven't seen it, it's A Hidden Life. It was released, I think, in about December 2019 in the States, wasn't it? So it's fairly fairly recent, but it's available on DVD and no doubt in other formats as well, um, uh, more recent formats. Steve, thank you very much. Steve Garber, the Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. The movie is A Hidden Life. Yes. And the uh, production company, Studio Babelsberg and Elizabeth Bay Productions. So thank you, Stephen. thank you very much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Steve, thanks so much.
1: You're very welcome. It's so good to see you again and be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.